So how's everybody doing? Yeah? There seems to be less of you than normal. Let's go ahead and pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for this time that we have together. Lord, always a blessing to be here with my brothers and sisters. And I ask, Lord, that you would move in our midst during this time, that you would speak to our hearts. May it be a beneficial time as we've sacrificed of our time, and it's always precious time to be here, to hear your word. So I pray, Lord, that you'd speak to our hearts, and in your name I pray, amen. Amen. All right, so open up to Judges chapter 6. Hey, how you doing? You, uh, you missed the fun part of the evening. Just tell you. <laughs> but you're here for the word. Good. So, Judges chapter 6, the cycle is going to continue, as always, after this victory. First comes complacency, and then just a complete collapse of morality. If you've been here the, the last couple of weeks in the book of Judges, you've seen this uh, cycle as it's ongoing. Last Thursday was uh, Deborah. She's the last couple of Thursdays, and Deborah led the nation, united the tribes against Jabin and Sisera, and went into combat, gave God the glory in her song in chapter 5. It was a wonderful song. We talked about motherhood. Um, but then, after her time, when the nation experienced peace with her death, came in a new enemy that overtook Israel completely. And uh, for the next 10 verses that we're going to read, we're going to see a vivid picture of Israel's sad state as they've gone from victory over the enemy to oppression under the enemy. So you can follow along starting in verse 1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. And whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the, the, uh, or whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites and Malachites and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count the men and their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. And when the Israelites cried to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt and from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them from before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you did not listen to me. So, <clears throat> hiding in caves, living in the darkness, afraid of their half-brothers, the Midianites. The, the Midianites are the, the spawn of Abraham after the death of uh, Sarah. You know, during this brief period of Abraham's life, he remarried to this other woman named Keturah. They had several sons. One of them was Midian. 
And there always seemed to be this contention between the two of them. There was always this fighting in the history of them. But during this period of Israel's history, Midian had the military advantage over Israel. They had these uh, combat-ready camels. Camels might sound strange in combat. Corinne's smiling. She might think it's adorable to see camels in this way. I don't know. That's that's where her brain usually goes. But uh, but it was common for them to have these military-trained camels for desert warfare. They're swift, they're sturdy, they're low-maintenance, so they're really the perfect animal for the climate of this combat. And so every time Israel would start to do well, you know, their crops would start to come in, cattle starting to look good, the Midianites would sweep through like locusts, too many of them to attach a number to, and they would wipe out the land. And they forced Israel into caves, hiding in shadows, living in fear. And in verse 11, the angel of the Lord came and sat down under an oak in Oprah. Now, if you remember from chapter 4 and 5, there was this character named Barak. And now in chapter 6, we have this place named Oprah. And if you've noticed, I've been very good about not making any puns based on these names, right? And, and I hope you appreciate that, right? Because it's been, it's been an effort on my part to resist the temptation. But I did look up the Hebrew definition of the word Oprah as a fun fact. Now, depending on how you feel about Oprah, there's something here for everyone. Now, there's two definitions of the word Oprah. The first one is fawn or deer. And so if you have a warm place in your heart for Oprah, go, that's, that's appropriate. She's a graceful, wonderful little deer. She's a fawn to me. Now, if you're coming from another direction with the way that you see Oprah, the second definition in Hebrew is the word dirt. So... <laughs> You can have fun with that. You can enjoy that. And uh, we'll move on from that because I don't want to get sidetracked on Barak or on Oprah. But the angel of the Lord came and sat under an oak in Oprah. You see the casual nature of the Lord. He comes on the scene, takes a seat in the shade, and uh, that, that shade happened to belong to Joash the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And here is Gideon, and Gideon's a product of his times. And he really is. I mean, you've got to consider the man in the context of where and when he lived. And so he's not on a hill or a high place where you would normally thresh wheat. You would want to do it on a hill because in the process of threshing wheat, you need a breeze, a strong wind. That's where you're going to find it. You're going to throw the stuff up in the air. The wind's going to carry away the chaff. The good stuff, the heavier stuff is going to fall to your feet. It's easier to collect there. But he's not doing it there. He's doing it in a wine press, which is a low place. So he's hiding out. He's in the shadows. And the Lord comes to him and says, I see you as you are, but I see you as what you could be. And it's a wonderful verse. I don't know how many youth I've shared this verse with. Brandon, 
I don't know. Probably have I? No. But others. <laughs> One of the most remarkable things in Scripture in the context of this chapter, this important principle that God sees us as we are, but he knows what we could be, the potential inside of you and me if we stop hiding and start standing. He looks at Gideon and he says, you're a mighty warrior. Israel would look at him and say, no, he isn't. Right? We, reading this chapter, in the context of what's happening, we would say, he's a coward. He's hiding in the shadows. Right? Gideon himself would hear this and say, I'm not that guy. You got the wrong guy. Maybe you're confused. Right? But this is, this is why I had to get rid of the message that I wrote yesterday. It was this verse alone. And we went out to yogurt, right? And we were sitting there, and we were enjoying our yogurt. And it was delicious. That place at the colonies, what's it called? Yu-Gi-Oh? Yeah. It sounds like Yu-Gi-Oh, like the show. Yeah. Or yo, yo, I don't know. Whatever it is, it's good. And uh, we're sitting there, we're eating, and I'm like, i got to get home because I've got to restart my message. And, uh, and, and it was very nearly complete, and then I, I read this verse again and was like, everything I wrote was wrong. It was just completely wrong. And, and Beth gave me a sad face because she's considerate about my time, you know. And, uh, <laughs> and there should be more sad faces. But, but, but I had to get home because it, it was just, it was, it was wrong. The, the way that I had painted God, I painted a picture of God and that message is the type of God that would show up on the scene and say, look at you. You're a bunch of cowards. You're hiding out. This isn't what you should be doing. This isn't what I called you to do. I have three points to the message. You might enjoy them. I included them. I'm not going to waste all that time. Let's be real. They're in the message. Three points. You can follow along in the first ten verses. The first point. And I, I painted a picture of the type of God that would come on the scene and say, well, well, well the, the, this is what you did. You didn't do what I told you to do in the first place. In Numbers chapter 31, I told you to go in and destroy the Midianites. You know, didn't he? You can read it. Write it down. Read it later at home. Some great bedtime reading. God says, go in there and destroy him. And they didn't. They didn't. They walked out with the women. And what's more surprising than that is Moses allowed them to walk out with the women. And so they started intermarrying. And when they allowed this corruption, this sin into their lives, it rebirthed the Midianite country. And so God comes in and God says, this is what happens. This is, this is what it looks like when you allow sin into your lives. The first thing you do is you start hiding out in caves. And you're in the darkness because you don't want other people to see you as you really are. And you're ashamed of it, so you're trying to conceal it. And the second thing that happens when you allow this into your life is your crops start failing. All the fruit starts drying up and dying. And you can take it as a spiritual principle. For the lives that we live when we, when we harbor sin. We try and hide sin. You know, first it sends us to the cave. And the fruit starts failing. And the third thing you'll see in verse 13 is eventually we get to the place where we accept that as our fate. And these were the three points in the message that I prepared, right? And, and they sounded like three good points. Right? You're hiding, your fruit starts dying, 
you stay in that place long enough, you begin to accept it. You just think that this is the life that I'm supposed to leave, live. And, and, and a God, uh, that, 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 that would inspire these three points would show up on the scene and say, you're a bunch of losers. And you sinned. This is your fault. You're in the caves. And, and you got no one to blame but yourself. But that's not what God says. And that's not what God does. What does God do? What does God say? He shows up and the first thing out of his mouth is, is you're a mighty warrior. And it's completely counterintuitive for me. It goes against who I am on a fundamental level. <laughs> I'm, I'm probably going to be the type of father that's going to look at his kid and say, well, you know, you got electrocuted because you, you stuck your finger in the socket. Don't do that. You know, that's your own fault. You need to go to the hospital. I'm not taking you. You can walk. You know, it's like, that's not God. And you see the grace and compassion of God, the mercy and the tenderness of God. And he says, you don't know it. You can't see it. But you are a mighty warrior. It's a wonderful thing to consider. And God says, you don't have to do this. You don't have to be hiding out in these caves. You don't have to be living this life that you're living. I and with you, Gideon. And you can see the, the great man of faith, Gideon, responds thusly in verse 13. But sir, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all of his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us in the hand of, the Midian, of Midian. Gideon, he couldn't imagine a God that could pull him out of the cave. They could drag him out of the darkness. But what Gideon didn't realize is that God had been there the entire time that he was in the cave. And every day that he was in the darkness. And his vision of God was limited and narrow. And it's about to be broadened beautifully through this encounter. I think that's why people love this encounter so much. The same God that he knew about all of his life. He'd heard stories about it. He didn't know him when he was talking to him face to face. But God never left him. God always had a plan for him. It was the opposite of what Gideon believed. Gideon thought that God had forsaken him. And all this while, God was there talking to him. He had a plan for him. He thought, well, if you're God, then why is all this happening? Then where have you been? And what's going on? You know, where's all these miracles that you're supposed to be doing? And isn't this the way that Christians feel about God so often? They become disillusioned in their faith, end up leaving the faith. Well, why aren't you a Christian anymore? Well, I don't know. God stopped showing up in my life. I don't know what his deal was. He wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing. He wasn't holding up his end of the bargain. You know, I read this book and there's all these amazing things in it, but I don't see those in my life. Where are you? What are you doing? This is exactly what Gideon says. And this is exactly how God responds to him in verse 14. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? It's a very interesting way that God responds to him. Right? John Corson uh, says in his commentary, God doesn't answer the why or the where. He simply says the what. I think that's a wonderful quote, right? God doesn't answer the why or the where. 
He simply says, what? You know, we say, why is this happening? And where are you? And God just says, okay, this is what you got to do. And we ask so often the why and the where. I think it's natural for us to ask that. You know, pastors, your whole church experience have been telling you, I'm sure, to not ask why, right? To just see what you can learn in those situations. And that's what they've always told me. You know, someone dies that you love or someone's suffering under some illness and, and you're asking why, and it's genuine and it's sincere. They say, well, it's not healthy to ask why. Just try and understand what you can understand through the situation. Try and glean the truths of God. Grow. The reality of it is, is that we're going to ask why, and we're going to ask where. But the reality of it is also that God's just going to say what. He's just going to tell you what the next move is. And in taking that next move, this is the wonderful thing about it. You begin to understand why. You begin to understand where. And he didn't have to answer it. And and you see the beauty in it and the simplicity in it. That that next thing that God sets in front of you that you begin to step into, you begin to understand, well, now I understand. Now I see it. Now, now it's clear why I went through that. Now I can see what God was doing through that. And now I know where God was throughout all that. He's right where he always will be. And it's exactly what he says to Gideon. It's here with you. It's a beautiful, very simple thing that we can take away from this passage when we cry out, why? God simply says, just take the next step forward and you're going to understand why. I'm going to meet you there. I think so often when we're in those situations and we're feeling that pain and that hurt and we cry out, why? We stop taking those steps forward. So we never have that question answered. And it causes this seed of doubt and bitterness against God. It says you can't stop here. This is a hard time. You're in caves. You're hiding out. It's difficult. You've got failing fruit all around you. You the the, the you, you know the the everything's ugly and dark and just take a step forward. This is what I'm telling you to do. And as you do that, you'll understand why you had to go through that. And in verse 15, he says, But Lord, Gideon asks, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. And the Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites together. Again, how does God answer him? He doesn't, right? I mean, I have this interplay between him and God is so confusing if you're just reading it for face value. Because Gideon keeps on saying something to God. The angel of the Lord, you know, this manifestation of Christ in the Old Testament. And then he answers in this 
completely abnormal fashion. He says, I can't do it. I'm the weakest. And God says, okay. Go do it. You know, I mean, God doesn't say, well, I, okay, I know you're from a small clan, but you're, you know, you're, you're a good clan. There's good people in that clan. And don't say that you're the weakest. I mean, that's, that's gotta be an exaggeration. I mean, right? Like, I'm sure you have, you have a cousin and he's like four. Right? You gotta be stronger than that guy. You know, he doesn't say that. I mean, he's not trying to justify Gideon. He's not trying to answer his excuse. He just says, you know, I'll be with you. And this is the way that God is always going to answer our excuses. This is the way God always answers my excuses when I complain and say that I can't. And I do that a lot. He just says, I'll be with you. And it's like, but I can't. Well, good. I'm glad you realized that. Now let's go do it. You know, because there's no excuse that's going to be greater than our God. You'll never find it. You know, you just, you can't. It's not there. You know, God can use anyone. And the proof of that is the very book that you have in front of you. I mean, you look at some of the, the people that God uses in this book. And usually, right, they're a pretty unrighteous lot. They're not the best of the best, I guess to put it lightly. Let me give you a couple of examples, just like two or three, or like 20. Noah got drunk. Abraham was too old. Sarah had stopped ovulating. Isaac was a daydreamer. Jacob was a liar. Leah was ugly. Judah committed incest. Joseph was abused. Moses murdered. So did David and Paul. Moses stuttered tended sheep and died too young. Deborah was a woman. Gideon was afraid. Samson had long hair. Jephthah's mother was a prostitute. Hosea's wife was a prostitute. Rahab was a prostitute. David was too young. So was Jeremiah and Timothy. I can go on. Right? These are great excuses as to why God could not use these people. And yet God did with every single one of them. You want me to go on? I'll go on. Someone shook their head. No, I'm not going to regard it. David was nervous. <laughs> had a nervous breakdown and an affair. Elijah was suicidal. Jeremiah was depressive. Isaiah had a foul mouth and preached in the nude. You can read it. It's a great story. Daniel was locked up with, li with lions. Jonah ran away. Naomi was a widow. Job lost his children, his health, and his wealth. John the Baptist ate bugs. Peter had a bad temper, a big mouth, and broke his promises. John was self-righteous. The disciples fell asleep. Matthew was a thief. Simon uh, was a fanatic. Nathaniel was cynical. Martha was a worrywart. Mary was lazy. Mary Magdalene was demon-possessed. The little boy had only five loaves and two, fifth, two fish. The woman at Syker had been sleeping around. Zacchaeus was too short. The colt that Jesus rode in on was a donkey, and some of his disciples were too. Simon was just a bypasser. Paul was single, a prisoner, and a poor speaker. Philip disappeared. Mark quit. Timothy had ulcers. And Lazarus was dead. I mean, what excuse could we possibly have? When you get down to it, 1 Corinthians one twenty nine says, God does not use us because of who we are, but in spite of who we are, that no man should boast before him. And there's nothing that you can say to that. I mean, I have a great grab bag of excuses as to why God can never use me. 
I mean, I'm, I'm sure you, you've seen the, the great limitations of my speaking ability. It's cleared out of room this Thursday. But, <laughs> but, I mean, I have a terrible memory. My entire life, I've had a really bad learning disability. You know, it, it, all these things are things that when God said, okay, I want you to start preaching, I said, you got the wrong guy. But nonetheless, you know, he's impressed upon my heart to do it. And he's given me some ability to do it. But anyone could be used of God. It doesn't matter what your excuse is. It doesn't matter what your limitations are. The fact of the matter is we all have limitations. Everybody on that list had limitations. Everybody in this book is going to have limitations. You're reading a book about real people that were used by an amazing God. And that God doesn't have those limitations. So when you link up with him to do these works, it's enough for him to say, I will be with you. But Gideon was a realistic, logical thinker. It's part of the reason why I identify with him so much. So he went about to test God to determine if this was really the thing that God wanted him to do. So we read this beginning in verse 17. Gideon replied, If now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that is really you talking to me. I keep on picking up Tony's songs over here. Tony, someone consider it. <laughs> now, let me say, preachers got different takes on this. Right, commentaries are filled with, with different perspectives on this. Some of them like to say Gideon shouldn't have asked for a sign. Right? Maybe you've heard that. Some people they say, no, it's a good thing that Gideon asked for a sign. Me, I'm gonna say that I don't think that it was a bad thing that Gideon asked for a sign. There's no indication that God responded to it as if it was a bad thing. I've often identified with Gideon because I tend to err on the side of pragmatism. I'm a, you know, realistic thinker. And I know myself. I know my limitations. Uh, you know, I'm very aware of my shortcomings as a human being. So, and that might, that might sound sad. But, you know, I think it's a good thing. I'm very pragmatic in that manner. You know, I know, okay, well, this is me. Let's be realistic. Not all that capable. So the extent of my limitations may be the boundaries here. God doesn't have these limitations, endless boundary. So before I step into anything that's beyond my boundary, I want to make sure that God is going to be there. But more than that, I want to make sure that God wants me to be there. And that's exactly what Gideon did. I don't think it's a bad thing to do. It's not a lack of faith to desire God to confirm to you a message that is from him, before you set out to do a work for him and with him. I think that's a spiritually responsible thing to do. You know, my last uh, semester in Bible college, um, we had this huge outreach, right? And it was at the mall. We had, uh, we had bands and BMX bike riders and guest speakers, and it was fairly successful. There were a few people that got saved. And uh, one of the girls that was on the leadership team that planned this event got it in her idea that this type of thing should be happening in all 50 states. And so she set up dates. 
she uh, she organized the BMX bike riders and all the bands and got guest speakers and and set this whole thing up and and she spearheaded uh, not only herself but a bunch of students at the school dropping out of Bible college in order to go do this and um, and I know no one wants to hear unspiritual you know no one wants to appear unspiritual by saying well this is probably irresponsible you know they had no money uh, they were going on the simple fact that the girl said that she had a vision and it was like okay that's good they had a vision um, but the venues were frustrated and unprepared when they set out to do the work uh, since they didn't have any money the bands didn't get paid, so they dropped out. The BMX bike riders couldn't get the dates organized with her, so they ended up dropping out. And since there was no advertising campaign, uh, no one came to the events in the first place. I think when it was all said and done, she only ended up doing two or three of these, and it was a debacle. And everyone was left wondering if God was really in the thing. You know, it's like, are you sure that you heard from God? Or is this just something that you wanted to do? You know, John Wesley said, it's a good thing to note down, do not hastily ascribe things to God. Do not easily suppose dreams, voices, impressions, visions, or revelations to be from God. They may be from him. They may also be from nature or self, or they may be from the devil. It's not a lack of faith to want God to confirm these things to you before you set out to make these major decisions. I'm not talking about like before you go buy groceries, right? We had some Christians like that at Bible college. They were like, do I use this pencil or this pencil? And I need to fast about it. And it's like, no, you need to write something down right now. I think you can make that decision. But before you make these major life decisions. It's not a lack of faith to slow down, earnestly seek God, seek confirmation. That being said, let me say this. I think Gideon went about doing it in the right way. There's a couple of things I'm going to point out here uh, that I think Gideon did right. Uh, first, he didn't rely on emotions. Uh, I think that's a great thing. Me being uh, somewhat of an emotionless person, uh, it's, it's my first point under this series. So he didn't rely on emotions. I think that that is a great thing. I, I you know, I, I hear Christians all the time uh, saying when it comes to the will of God that they feel a peace about something. Um, and I'm not going to say that that's a bad thing because I'm sure that there's several people in this room that have said that at one point or another. And I want you to like me, right? I, I want you, <laughs> I want you to come back next Thursday. <laughs> Um, so I'm not going to say that that's a bad thing, uh, but here's the reality of it, right? If God was calling you to make war against Midian and they're innumerable, right? How many, how many people are you going to be fighting? I don't know. They're innumerable. There's, that's, there's so many of them that you can't count them and they have camels. What do you got? You got your feet. I mean, how are you going to, how do you feel about this? Are you going to be like, yeah, I feel good about this. Let's go do this. I can tell that this is the right decision by how good I feel 
about this. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's not what you would be saying. I, it, let me be honest with you, I never feel good before I preach. There's never been a moment that I've been sitting somewhere before I come up to preach, and I'm sitting there and I'm like, yeah, feel good. <laughs> it's usually the complete opposite of that. But I know that God still wants me to do it. I mean, so I do it. So it's not smart to depend on your feelings alone as the guide for the will of God. Feelings aren't necessarily the way to determine that. Uh, there's this wonderful illustration that I have to use uh, to prove this point. Jessica Hahn, maybe some of you, that's that name's ringing a bell. She was the former church secretary of Jim Baker. She was the one that uh, committed adultery with him and, and you know, broke apart the whole Praise the Lord Club and, and, uh, and everything. She said that God gave her a real peace about giving an interview to Playboy and posing for topless pictures. I just think that's, that's a perfect example of, of these, these, of, of this type of thing where you're depending on feelings to judge what is right and wrong. You know, she might have felt a peace, but it wasn't from God, and it certainly wasn't confirmation for her to pose nude, right? A second, the second thing that Gideon did right is he kept the matter between himself and God. Now, again, I might be stepping on toes with this one, but I think a lot of people have this Jedi Council mentality when it comes to figuring out the will of God for their lives. And it's not what you see in this story, right? I mean, a lot of, a lot of Christians, they think, well, if I just get together my most spiritual friends, so I'm going to get on the phone and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to call up Gil, right? And, and he's been kind of sleeping during the message, so I thought that I'd throw him in there. <laughs> I'm going to get on the phone, I'm going to call up Gil, right? And he's super spiritual and he could bring over Mary. You know, she's, I'm not going to call her, but <laughs> I'm just kidding. You're super spiritual. I'm going to call up Beth. I'm going to call up Brandon because he's got nice hair. You know, I'm going to call up Alex. I'm going to call up, you know, all these people and, and we're going to sit together. We're going to have tacos and I'm going to look at each one of them and I'm going to be like, okay, now, now what do I do with my life? You know, <laughs> and, and they're going to give me the answer because they're really godly, right? But that's not... What Gideon did, could you think of what might have happened if Gideon tried that? I mean, I can see Gideon coming up to anybody in all of Israel and saying, hey, I think God's calling me to make war on Midian. It'd be like, what are you, crazy? Get back in your cave. You know what I mean? <laughs> that's, that's what would have happened. You know, it's, people were, were terribly flawed. That's the reality of it. I mean, even, even these, you know, the, these, these pillars of spirituality that I called out in our presence tonight, you know, I mean, terribly flawed. We could be, the, the, we, we can be a messenger of God at one moment and a messenger of the devil the next. And I'm sure you've all noticed it to be true. I mean, you, you take Matthew uh, 16, for instance. It's probably the, the, the most clear illustration of this. You know, Peter says, uh, you know, when Jesus says, who do people say I am? Peter goes, well, you're, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus praises him for it. 
He's like, whoa, uh, yeah, look at you. Good job. You know, saying what's right, being righteous. And then a moment later, Jesus is talking about how he's gonna, how he's gonna be taken to the courts, how he's gonna be executed, and how he's gonna be raised again on the, on the third day. And Peter says, you know, I don't, I don't think that that's in the cards. I don't think that's a good idea. Maybe we shouldn't go down that road. And what does Jesus say to him? Yeah, he says, get behind me, Satan. I mean, one moment he was the golden boy. And the next moment, he's the devil. You know? But that's the way we are. That's what we're capable of. Um, we're human. That's just the reality of it. So we shouldn't be looking to one another to get the answer for the will of God. What you're going to look to when you look to one another is you're going to look to the will of man. And that's probably what you're going to end up with. If you want to find out the will of God, you go to God and you talk to him. And let's be honest. There's, there's been times in all of our lives when we wish that people would come to us and ask us what we think before they make a major life decision. You know, it's like, should I do this? No. What are you, crazy? You know, but really, who am I to say to Gideon that he shouldn't go up against the Midianites? You know, I'm not God, and you're not God. And you need to consider that when people do come up to you and ask you about these things. Because you could be that person that does say to Gideon not to go up against the Midianites. And it would be a terrible thing to stand in the way of God's will for someone's life. Get in the habit of just pointing people back to God when they ask you those questions. Rather than getting in there and giving your opinion. It's really easy for me to do. Um, boy, there's this guy that comes to my house all the time and asks me questions like this. It's like, what do I do? Where do I go? How do I live? And I'm like, okay, this is what you got to do. <laughs> but how arrogant and foolish of me. Who am I to step in and play God in his life? And you know what happens when we start doing that, we start making those people more dependent upon us and less dependent upon God. And he started coming over to my house more and more often instead of going to God more and more often to have those questions answered. It's not a good thing to do. You know, when it comes to finding out the will of God, um, I always figured that the best thing to do, the best place to go, would be to find a guy that really lived a life the glorified God, did a lot for God, had a lot of decisions to make when it came to living his life for God, and then to figure out what his process was going about determining the will of God. And George Mueller uh, is the guy that, that I found for the illustration for tonight. Um, and it was actually some time ago when I was preparing a message for Hebrews chapter 11 that I came across uh, Mueller's writings on the subject. He had four points to consider uh, to consider when it came about determining the will of God, and they were all just really excellent. You know, Mueller, if you're not familiar with him, he uh, 
he built orphanages and evangelized almost every continent on the known, uh, well, it's still, whether it's known or unknown, it's, it's the world. <laughs> so every continent on the planet in the 19th century. And uh, first, the first point he said, and I'll review these, they're a little uh, confusing the way that he's worded them. They'll probably be more confusing the way I word them. But between the two of them, you'll be able to determine what he's actually saying. Um, the first thing he said is, I seek at the beginning to get my heart into such a state that it has no will of its own in regard to a given matter. Nine-tenths of the trouble with people uh, generally is just here. Nine-tenths of the difficulties are overcome when our hearts are ready to do the Lord's will, whatever it may be. When one is truly in this state, it is usually but a little way to the knowledge of what his will is. So that's the first thing to do, is to get rid of your own will. The second thing, having done this, I do not leave the results to feeling or simple impressions. If so, I make myself liable to a great delusion. We've already talked about this a little bit. He's saying, don't do that. Do this. Still the second point. I seek the will of the Spirit of God through or in connection with the Word of God. The Spirit and the Word must be combined. If I look to the Spirit alone without the Word, I lay myself open to a great delusion also. But if the Holy Ghost guides us at all, he will do it in according to the scriptures and never contrary to them. So that's the second thing. You seek the will of the Spirit, you seek the will of the Word. Third one. Next, I take into account providential circumstances. These uh, often plainly indicate God's will in connection with his Word and his Spirit. Fourth, I ask God in prayer, to reveal his will to me aright. Thus, through prayer to God, study of his word and reflection, I come to a deliberate judgment according to the best of my ability and knowledge. And if my mind is thus at peace and continues, uh, so after two or three more petitions, I proceed accordingly in trivial matters and in transactions involving most important issues. I have found this method always effective. Doesn't it sound so proper? I love the way that he writes. It's so, uh, so articulate. Um, when I first read this, as I said, uh, I was getting this message ready for Hebrews chapter 11. And uh, there, was, there was a ring at the doorbell. And um, someone wanted to talk to me. They had these questions for me. I was putting these points together. And, uh, and Mueller's words weren't far from my mind. Uh, where first he says, ask the Lord to show you your desires. Our hearts are very deceitful, right? A lot of times we can trick ourselves into believing that what we want is what God wants. And because we're Christians, we want to do what God wants, right? I think that most Christians are like that. You, you want to know what God wants you to do so that you can do it, or at least so that you can know it. You know, some people, if God's like impressing on your heart to go to like Africa, you're like, okay, I know that. It's good to know that. I'm going to stay here. But uh, but generally, most Christians, you want to know what God has. There's a danger in just having an idea and then ascribing it to God. You know, like you talk to some people and they're like, okay, well, uh, I think God wants me to quit my job and move to Hawaii. And it's like, are you sure that that's God? Because I think everybody, right, wants to quit their job and move to Hawaii. That sounds like a great thing to do. 
Mueller says, best place to start, you think of everything you want, you get rid of that. Right? You just dispose of it. You empty yourself of all that God. Once God has shown you those desires, dispose of them, because it must be all thy will, none of my will. Second, seek the will of the Spirit and the will of the Word. These two are always going to agree. Never going to be in conflict to one another. So if God's calling you to pose in Playboy, you're probably not hearing God right. Right? It's probably your own spirit that's saying that rather than God's spirit because that's in contradiction to the word of God. Right? So that woman, I've already forgotten her name, but uh, she she's clearly in contradiction here under this second point. So despite the fact that you might feel a peace about something, it needs to sync up with the word of God. The two have got to align with one another. So third, take your life into account. Providence, circumstance. Uh, the Jews have a wonderful saying uh, that coincidence is not a kosher word. It's not. Those things don't exist. God's trying to tell you something through those circumstances. You just need to be aware of them. Then fourth, and finally, pray without ceasing. Now, I want you to be aware of all these. As I read to you what this person said to me on this day that I was preparing this message. He said, I always wanted to get a job and make money, but that desire has recently left me. You know, recently, I've had this feeling to do more for the Lord, and he's been burdening me with the Great Commission. I came home the other day. My mother's friend left this flyer for a missionary training course on our porch. So I've been praying about it. I think that's what I should do. How many of them did you see in there? Did you see the first one in there? Ask the Lord to show you their, your desires and then get rid of them? It's the first thing you said. I've always wanted to get a job and make money. That desire has recently left me. You see the second one in there? Seek the will of the Spirit in accordance with the will of the Word. The second thing you said. Recently, I've had this feeling to do more for the Lord. Well, that's the will of the Spirit. And he's been burdening me with the Great Commission. Well, that's right out of the Word. Let's take a look at the third one. Take your life into account. Coincidence? Providence? These things don't exist. Was there a coincidence in this? Yeah, I came home the other day. My mother's friend left this flyer for a missionary training course on my front porch. Now let's take a look at the fourth one. Pray without ceasing. The last thing he said, so I've been praying about it. I think that I should do it. And I just remember looking at the guy and thinking, well, what does God have to do? I mean, does he have to come out of the clouds and hit you over the head with a hammer? I mean, this is very clearly what God wants you to do. I mean, you got four out of four. It's perfect. It lines up. It's exactly what Mueller was talking about. You know the Lord's will. Now, blessed are you if you do it. So just go and step into it and have faith. I mean, it's very unlikely that God is going to appear to any of us tangibly and say, hey, Brandon, this is what I want you to do, okay? And Brandon's going to be like, see, you know, and he's going to go do it. That is, however, exactly what God did to Gideon. So given his different circumstances, this is maybe the way you can react in that situation. We read about that beginning in verse 18.
It says, please uh, do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. So if God appears to you tangibly, go ahead and do this. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. Gideon went in, prepared a young goat from an ephah of flour. He made bread without yeast, putting the, the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot. He brought them out and offered them to uh, him under a, the oak. And the angel of the Lord said, take the meat, the unleavened bread, place them on the, or on the rock, pour out the broth. Gideon did so with the tip of his staff that was in his hand. The angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread. The angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, O oh, sovereign Lord, I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid. You are not going to die. Now, this is the kind of request for a sign that God responds to. Right. Some time ago, my dad uh, stood alone in an empty room and said, God, if you're real, reveal yourself to me. And because nothing happened, my dad remains uh, an atheist to this day. So why did God answer Gideon's request for a sign and not my dad's. And it's because they were fundamentally different. My dad was asking for a sign to validate his unbelief. And Gideon was asking for a sign to validate his belief. They're completely different. You know, most of the time when Jesus was asked to perform a sign by people, he wouldn't do it because they're treating him like a trained dog. You know, you look at Jesus and say, Jesus, jump through this hoop for me. Do something cool for me. Amaze me. Perform for me. You know, and this is a lot of times what we do with Jesus. We'd say, okay, Jesus, fetch me a new job. Hey, Jesus, jump over this obstacle in my life for me. But he's not going to honor that because he never did in his word. You're asking him to perform. He's going to respond to the requests of Gideon because Gideon asked in faith, in the little faith he had, and God would perform to reward his little faith with great faith. He said, I'll show myself to you. I'll make myself clear and visible to you so that you'll know who it is that you're serving. And the response should always be the same in verse 24, in the last verse that we'll consider tonight. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord, and there he called it, the Lord is peace. And to this day it stands in Oprah of the Abizrites. Our response to God in moments like this should always be the same. It should always be in worship. Now Gideon erected an altar that night because he met 
a god that previously he was completely unaware of. Gideon knew a god that was absent. He had his entire life believed in a god that had forsaken his own people. But this night he met a god who was the Lord of Peace. And it was the type of God who had not only not forsaken him, but who had been there with him this entire time, through this entire experience, who had a plan for him, who was willing to reveal himself to him in all of his complexity and all of his intricacies and, and to leave him with this peace. And it wasn't a mystical type of peace that we think about. It was a concrete, confirmed peace from God himself. And there's been moments in my life, and, and, and it's the reason why I have this uh, here tonight, that I've tried to mark as, as altars, as memorials, moments when my vision of God was expanded in an amazing way. When, when it was broadened, where there was something that I'd always known about because I'd read it or heard other people talk about, but it wasn't authenticated in my experience. And that's what Israel did with these altars. It, they worshipped God in the moment, and then they left the altars there as a reminder to everybody that came after them that this is God, and this is what we know about God now. That he's not just a vague memory of God. This is the real living God. He met me and he left me with peace. This is what I can understand about him. My vision of him has been broadened to the comprehension of this. And this is, this is actually a night at camp when I was 20. And, and it was a college camp and uh, it was the last session of the night, and and the speaker told us all to go off into the woods, and that's what I did, and uh, you know, and I was wandering around. I didn't have a flashlight, and so I remember that, that where I tripped, that's where I prayed for the evening. <laughs> it was a pain. I decided to make good use of it, and uh, and so I was I was praying and I was talking to God, and and He seemed to. to to just speak to me in a, a very, uh, granted, inaudible, I'm not, I'm not bananas, but, uh, but in, in, in a very significant and powerful way. And he seemed to say that, that when you come down from, from this, I, I want you to remember this. I want you to remember this moment that we met and we talked, and I'm telling you that there needs to be some changes. There needs to be a change of course. And, and I took this because it was, it was what I fell on. And, and I wrote the date and I wrote the event on it. And I've always kept it in the house. And I drove down from that, uh, that retreat at camp. And I left the college I was at. I ended a two-year relationship that I was in. And I applied to Bible college. Um, 
And I brought this because I think we take moments like this too, likely, too lightly. And because we don't erect altars in our life the way that they did, the way that some of us do, it's easy to forget. It's easy to think, well, maybe that was just an emotional moment. Maybe, you know, things got the best of me and my imagination carried me. And the next day, we're Gideon and we're back at the wine press and we're back threshing wheat in the shadows. And God would come to us and say, what are you doing here? Remember, we met, we talked. It was significant. I told you things. You committed to doing things. Why are you back in the shadows? Why are you back living this life that you determined to leave behind? Yeah, to wreck these things, to never forget the moment that we saw God in a radical and beautiful new way. And to change our course from that moment forward. And that's exactly what we're going to see next week as we continue with Gideon. We're going to see the radical change of direction that his life is going to take. So we'll go ahead and close there. And it's, it's been a very long message, and I thank you, most of you, for not sleeping. Let's go ahead and pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this time that we've had together. And Lord, I... I thank you for your word, Lord, that it's so encouraging to me. And times like this where I find myself in so many different places in the study, I praise you, Lord, that you're merciful to me. Because I'm often like Gideon. And I have every excuse as to why I'm not the right person. But you just always say the same thing, that you're going to be there. Lord, and I thank you that you do take our small faith. And as we step forward with you and see you in our lives, you build our faith. You show yourself to be true as we walk with you. And Lord, I pray that we would, in our own way, whatever it may be, build an altar in our heart to remember you, to not take lightly those moments that we've spent with you, that we would constantly walk away from your word, from your spirit, changed by you, redirected by you. Give me all the glory, Lord. I thank you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.